Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of the Half Stack Data Science Podcast. We've been on a bit of a break recently. Uh, life has got in the way of our recordings a little bit, but we will be back in 2019 with new episodes. We have a few things in the pipeline, and we're definitely not going anywhere. In the meantime, though, I'm very excited to bring you a special episode featuring our first ever guest interview. In this episode, I'm speaking to Alison Now, Currently a director at Test Learn Iterate Limited, Allison is an experienced data leader and change agent with proven ability to drive strategic growth through data and insight. Previously, she was the managing director of Cox Automotive Data Solutions, establishing data solutions as a new business unit with a focus on delivering actionable insight within Cox Automotive and to the used car industry more widely. This is where Sean and I both worked with her, and we get into the details of the process of how she set this up in our interview. Prior to joining Cox Automotive, Allison was product director at LexisNexis, where she oversaw the launch of half a dozen data and analytics products for the UK motor insurance sector, including the No Claims Discount database, which she tells us a little bit about. Having started her career as a data scientist at an insure tech startup, she's passionate about helping people use information to transform the way the world works. Alison holds a BA from the College of Worcester in Mathematics and International Relations and an MA from the University of Michigan in Quantitative Political Science. So we talked about her journey to data science leadership, how she then set up this entirely new business unit at Cox Automotive, how enterprise business culture can be a challenge to overcome, and how wider data literacy can help us with that. And we also touch on optimal strategies to choose a queue at the supermarket. It was really great having Alison on, and I hope you find the conversation as interesting and valuable as I did. So without further ado, I bring you my interview with Alison now. Okay, I am here with Alison now. Alison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we've been trying to get this conversation going for a while. So as listeners know, Sean and I work at the same company, Cox Automotive, that we've talked about a little bit, and you worked with us, you set up our initial team um, to start with, so we'll, we'll definitely get into a little bit of that. But just to start off, can you tell us how you got where you are? How does someone become a data person and specifically get to sort of what you ended up doing? I've always liked math as a kid. Um, I like doing logic puzzles. Puzzles and card games were always things that I, I really enjoyed. I took various math classes when I was in high school um, in the U.S. and did enough math and science that when I got to university, I my first year I was actually very excited that I would never have to take another math or science course ever again and had planned to study international relations. And my first year roommate at that point in time was... Um, wanted to be a chemistry major, and she was struggling with her calculus homework. Um, and so I, I would spend some time helping her with it. And she said, Allie, you know, you're really good at math. You should think about taking a math class. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I became friends with a couple of upperclassmen who were math majors, and they were like, oh, math is the best. This is so much fun. You know, we're taking this course called Mathematical Modeling. Next term, you should see about taking it. Now, that was a course that I didn't have the prerequisites for. Um, the next course that I, sh I should have taken if I was going sort of sequentially through the recommended flow of subjects would have been Calculus 3, but that conflicted with the German class I needed to take for my international relations major. So 
I got permission from the professor to take mathematical modeling, and it really opened up my eyes to the power of math in solving real-world problems. We studied things like arms races. Um, we studied the travel, traveling salesman problem. Um, we looked at political districting and gerrymandering in the U.S. Um, we looked at voting behavior. So using mathematics to explain this you know, phenomenon or how, how to solve these real-world problems, I thought was was absolutely fascinating. Um, next term, I took another math course, um, and then I took a semester off math. I studied abroad in Germany, um, and came back thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm definitely going to have at least a math minor, because I'm only sort of two courses away from it. And then I realized that I was only about four or five courses away from getting a double major in math, as well as my international relations degree. Um, and that seemed like a pretty good use of my time. It didn't I, I enjoyed the math class. I missed the math um, when I was studying abroad. And so I ended up double majoring in mathematics and, and international relations and thought I wanted to become a political scientist. Um, and so I applied to PhD programs in the U.S. Um, that had a focus on, on quantitative social science um, and spent three years at the University of Michigan, where I got training in world politics as well as advanced statistics um, and game theory. And during my time at Michigan, I discovered that I didn't like teaching university students and I didn't like the pace of academic research. And so being a, a political scientist and a, a university professor was probably the wrong career path for me. And, and so I applied for every job that I could find um, in New York City and Washington, D.C. and Boston, because my husband and I had decided that we wanted to move to the East Coast, that had analyst or consultant in the job title. Um, and I got offered a job at what was what we would now call a, an insure tech startup, um, and what we would now call as a role as a data scientist. Um, but my job title was either analytical consultant or, or statistical modeler, depending on where which internal system you looked at. Um, and worked for that, that company called Optimal Decisions Group or ODG. And ODG provided price optimization and elasticity modeling solutions for insurance companies um, to help them move away from pure um, risk-based pricing to elasticity-based pricing, which was a change in the way that actuaries would think about um, pricing. Because within an insurance company, typically there's an underwriting team and then there's also a pricing team. And it was really teaching them you know, how to not just think about the, the risk of a policy that's being underwritten, um, but also how, how sensitive someone is to price, because younger people are riskier, but they're also much more sensitive to price than older people are, for example. Um, so I worked with a couple of top 20 insurers in the U.S., helping them roll out elasticity-based pricing. And you know, at that point in time, I think it said that ODG was acquired by two businesses. They were acquired by a company called ChoicePoint and then acquired by, by LexisNexis. Risk Solutions, which is a division of LexisNexis that provides data and analytics solutions for government insurance and financial services. So I was part of that, that insurance division, which at that point in time was predominantly based in the U.S. Um, the only international aspects of the business were what ODG had, which had been, was a, you know, the company had, was founded in Australia and had clients in the U.K., the U.S., and Australia. So, through those acquisitions, LexisNexis then decided they wanted to expand their insurance data business overseas. And part of why I studied international relations is because I wanted to get a job that would pay me to travel. So I put my hand up and I told everyone, um, my boss, my boss's boss, all my co-workers, um, that 
I didn't care what the work was, just get me on a plane. Um, <laughs> and so I was part of the business development team um, evaluating the UK market for international expansion for what LexisNexis calls contributory databases, which is where um, insurance companies would share information about claims or policies, and then LexisNexis would, would pull that information and manage it on behalf of the industry, um, and then insurance companies could inquire against that information when, when they would need that information, such as when a, a uh, customers requesting a quote for a policy or when there's um, a claim which has, has arisen. Um, so we identified that the UK market was a good good target, um, worked on the strategy, the product roadmap, business case, etc. Um, that was ultimately approved by the board of what was then Reed Elsevier and is now Relics Group. Um, and then I spent a couple of years commuting between New York City and London, um, helping to get the UK, LexisNexis UK business off the ground um, and relocated here to the UK in 2012. And during that time, I helped get that, that business up and running. I oversaw the launch of half a dozen data and analytics products for the UK motor insurance sector, including our no claims discount database. Um, and the NCD database, if people have a car, they typically have no claims discount or no claims bonus on their car, which is sort of discounts that, that are applied for each year that, that you don't have a claim. Um, and this is a that information was something that, that people would typically have to provide after they've taken out a new insurance policy and send, send that proof of, of NCD or NCB um, into the, in the post to their new insurance company. Um, it was a painful process for consumers. Lots of complaints about that if you looked online. Um, and it was also quite expensive for insurance companies where it might cost them anywhere from four to six pounds to process that. Um, not to mention that fraud was rampant in that area. Um, and so we built a database, you know, I, I, I led that development. And within two years we, of launch, we went from zero to 70% market coverage. Um, and now that that problem, you know, it's effectively has been automated um, because insurance companies can check the data directly um, as opposed to needing to request a piece of paper proof. Um, so not long after we sort of got to that type level of market coverage, I was approached by Cox Automotive because there had been a change in, in leadership at the board. Martin Forbes had joined, um, who's now the, the chief exec, and he was responsible for the, the retail division. Um, and he really recognized the, the need within Cox to mobilize the data that it had. Um, and there was also recognition, I think, across the board that they didn't have that expertise in-house. So I was brought in um, and given a blank sheet of paper and a budget um, and the, the very broad remit of figure out what we should do with our data and do it, which is just brilliant. It's so much fun to be given that amount of, of freedom and flexibility and autonomy, but also a huge amount of responsibility. Um, so when I joined Cox, um, I got all excited about all this data, immediately thinking of various applications because I knew what the, the, the motor insurance applications would be for, for a lot of the automotive data and thought, great, I'm going to hire some data scientists. It's going to be fantastic. And then I tried to get a data dictionary my first week on the job. And I got some helpful DBAs, gave me, you know, the sort of data dictionary where you scrape the SQL metadata off of a database. But there was a field INT underscore 490 with levels A, B, C, and D. And I didn't know what that meant. And no one could tell me what that meant, at least none of the people that I was talking to. So it became really clear that instead of hiring data scientists to do fantastic, fun things with the data, um, we first needed to understand what data we had. 
I think you you came to that conclusion probably two years earlier than lots of other companies who just launched in and hired a bunch of PhD data scientists out of the box, right? I like to think that fewer organizations are doing that right now, but certainly at the time that I was there, you know, it was a, very much a trend that we need some we need to do someone to do with data. Let's let's hire a data scientist um, because that's the the employment buzzword that people read about. When for you know, I think that data science is an important and interesting part of getting value from data, but it's just one piece. And in order for data science to be meaningful and worthwhile, you need to have gone quite a a lot of foundations need to be in place in order to get the best use out of out of data science and out of a data scientist. And so you, you need to understand what data you have. You need to get the operational capabilities in place. So you need to figure out you know, what are the people that you need? What are the platforms, the technology that you need? What are the you know, legal compliance considerations? How is this data going to be governed? You know, there's communication and education, which you need to do internally. And in the case of Cox, externally as well. So you're looking to change the way that the used car industry worked. You know, then there's the actionable insight, which you can deliver. And it's not sort of a linear process. You don't need to get all of your data pulled together into a data lake and then look to see what you've got. Um, I think that you can start with one source of data. And at Cox, we started with one source of data into a temporary SQL database that was connected to Tableau to provide a dashboard to one person. And you can do that sort of prototype, if you will, or proof of concept quite quickly. And then that helps to, that buys time. Um, and it also helps build momentum and, you know, encourages enthusiasm. People saying, oh, this is this is now what we can do. I didn't know what we could do before, but now I, I start to see what the art of the possible is. So, you know, at, at Cox, you know, I, I hired a business analyst, really, really fortunate. There's a great guy named Michael who um, had been a tester um, and had previously worked in the support function. Um, and he fancied giving it a go as a BA and joining the data team. And he was at, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, so that was really, really lucky that that worked out so well. But that's and, interesting that that was your first hire and that you're speaking so highly of the idea of hiring someone as like a business analyst before you even start thinking about, you know, the most technical people you could be hiring. You need to understand what you have before you can figure out what the right solution is. So, you know, getting getting Michael in as a, as a BA was absolutely critical because I had my own thoughts around what technical solution might be needed. But until we actually could understand what the data was and where it would come from and what the business use case for it would be, there's no point in bringing on board engineers because they're going to want to know what they need to do and why they need to do it. And if you can't, if you don't even know what, what data you've got, you certainly can't tell them what data they need to extract from which systems. And I think, you know, a real credit to Michael for the, the painstaking work that he did to get the data assets cataloged. Um, but it wasn't a job that I particularly would have wanted to do. Um, well, and spoiler alert, it doesn't actually stop that much. It, <laughs> He's still stop. doing it's, a lot of it. <laughs> it's, it's a continuous journey. You know, it's not just a once and done thing because systems continue to evolve. Systems continue to change. And as you're ingesting data... You know, as you ingest data from more systems, you need to make sure that it's cataloged. You understand what the lineage is, not only so that you can use it, but also so that you can make sure that you're ticking the various legal and compliance boxes. You know, organizations are under an obligation, particularly where there's personal data involved, to understand and know where their data is, why they've collected it, etc. So it 
it, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not something that's, it's now done. The data is all cataloged, done and dusted. It is very much an ongoing, ongoing piece of work. But I think, you know, that was, that was a really important, important hire. Um, and I think I'm also really fortunate that at Cox, there were five analysts sat in three different parts of the business, two guys in Bristol, two guys in Leeds, and a guy in near Manchester, um, who were all doing data analysis, but predominantly in silos. And they were enthusiastic hobbyists, people that had, had sort of fallen into it, but hadn't necessarily had much in the way of a formal training, and were ultimately reported up into three different board members. And I remember looking at some of the analysis that the guys in, in, in Bristol that John and Nathan were doing, um, and they were helping to provide support for the sales team that was looking to help vendors figure out where to sell their cars. And they, the vendors wanted to sell, know where to sell their cars for the most amount of money. The guys in Leeds were looking at helping buyers figure out where they could buy the cars for the least amount of money. It's the same analysis, just sorted in the opposite direction. And so by bringing those guys together, we're able to stop duplicating some effort, which then freed up some capacity without their, without any additional spend from the organization. So when I joined, I joined the business in September of 2015. In January of 2016, um, I had a team of six guys. I had, you know, five analysts and, um, and a BA who were started to work together as a team. And then, you know, in March, April of that year, um, brought on board a couple of engineers. One was an Ian, an engineer that was a, a DBA um, with within Cox, who was a was I think and probably still is, um, you know, a great asset to the team because of his knowledge of all the systems and data that Cox had, um, and who to contact to get access to what, as well as then bringing in a couple of big data engineers that didn't know anything about the business but really knew the you know big data technology how to build platforms, et cetera. And so that's how the team sort of started. And, you know, you see in that I've got, you know, analysts, you know, business analysts, sort of business intelligence analysts and engineers. The first data scientist who joined the team, you know, Sean didn't start until November of 2016. So more than a year after I joined and only after we had started to get data into a platform that could then be used to do more complicated sorts of analysis. Yeah, I mean, the year before that, I mean, how realistic would it have been for him to join and, and get the same results? If he had joined, he would have been incredibly frustrated and probably would have quit. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's the that's the general message that I think we talk about on the podcast as well. It's like, depending on where you are in the insight journey, you know, data science doesn't make sense until you reach that point. Um, but it's really interesting that you said that you, you, know, you found people in various silos in the organization. Do you think that's a better model for companies, especially like companies on, you know, the traditional enterprise side of things. Is that is that a better model for building an initial data team is like finding people who are already there doing that work and just effectively rebranding them? Because I think hiring data people is a hard thing in general. But I mean, how do you think this is uh, as a model for, for other companies to do? I, I think a lot of organizations have analysts in silos. That because a sales team has identified that they need an analyst, or a logistics team has identified that they need an analyst, or marketing has identified that they need a, need a couple of analysts. And I think, you know, in, in speaking with peers of mine from other organizations, that's not that uncommon. But the challenge that you have is you end up with, with these people that are operating sort of by themselves or maybe with, you know, one or two peers 
typically reporting into a management that doesn't fully understand what it is that they do. And so they're not able to develop as data professionals in the same way that they could if they were part of a centralized centralized team. And in the same way that marketing professionals, or not marketing professionals, but um, HR professionals or, or finance teams, you know, within a, a large organization, you know, there will be a, a, a central HR function and you know, HR people ultimately report up to the VP of HR or whatever terminology is used on the organization. Sometimes it's people, sometimes it's people and culture. There's all sorts of job titles for how HR is branded and rebranded. But that human resources function, it's a central function that's considered to be vital to keep the organization running smoothly. Um, but within an HR function, an HR person will be assigned to work with different business areas. And so you've got different business areas have their HR guy or girl that they would go to, but that HR person doesn't report into the directly into the business unit. They're sort of dotted into the business unit, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that that model, you know, and as when I was leaving Cox and you're, you're, you're still there, as we were piloting that business partner model, it seemed to really resonate quite well with the business because they had a, a go-to person and it embedded that data person sort of more closely with the business area, but they weren't reporting into that line management, so they weren't going to be stuck being the report person for that business area. By being part of a central data team, they've got more peers, they've got more opportunity, opportunities to learn um, and to grow as data professionals than they would if they, they were reporting into that, that um, line of business. And, you know, if I look at, at, at Cox, you know, we sort of centralize and we fully centralize. And that was largely driven because of a massive IT project um, that was fundamentally changing the, one of the biggest sources of data for the business. And we needed to make sure that all of the business reporting that happened for internally and externally was uninterrupted as part of that, that change. And so because of the, the significant amount of work on this big waterfall project, we didn't have the capacity to also do be data business partners and deliver this project, which is the most important, you know, multi-year project. So, what 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 do you think it is about this particular profession that makes it difficult for companies to think of it that way? I mean, obviously, everybody that the, these different business units must recognize the value of having an analyst, right? Because that's why they hired them hopefully. Um, and they also recognize in the case of HR that a central function makes sense. So what, what is it about this this kind of job that, that means that companies haven't been doing this already, do you think? It's new. But I mean, if they already have analysts, or is it is it is that, is the, the idea of an analyst, an analyst still so new to companies? I think for you know, if I exclude insurance, if I exclude financial services, what will when I see organizations that have an analyst or two in a in a particular pocket, it's typically because a manager of that team understands that that would be useful, but doesn't necessarily have the political clout, willpower, or desire to make a business case that it would be useful for the entire business. So within their sphere of control. I've got a bit of budget. You know what? I think this would be useful. I'm going to hire my own analyst because I can do that and I can get that signed off because I've got, I can find the budget for it. Building a central team requires sponsorship and buy-in at the board, you know, or the, or the leadership team level in order to, in order to do that. That's a bigger thing. And that will require 
you know, a view that there needs to be fundamental, the organization fundamentally will need to change. Um, so, you know, I think from what I see is it, it will depend on who, who, who thinks that there's value in the data and at what level in the organization that is and how much, how much they're, they're able to successfully push, push for it. So, so do you think people trying to set up similar data teams in, in sort of enterprise organizations, do, do you think that they come up with like company-wide cultural difficulties? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that the, the cultural, I think now if I look back to, if I look back to where, where the world was sort of three, four years ago to where it is now, I think there's more of a recognition that data is valuable. I think most organizations are making investments in the in technology and in teams, but that cultural piece is not to be underestimated. When and when I say the cultural piece, I'm not talking about the likes of Google, Facebook, Netflix, Airbnb. I'm not talking about the digital native companies that were built as data companies in the internet age um, and have as part of the recruitment process, made sure that they have, have hired a data literate workforce. I'm speaking about all the rest of the companies that are out there um, that are trying to figure out how they need to change in order to compete with the likes of, of these newer businesses that have turned everything into a tech business. So what what's the hardest thing about overcoming this culture? I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to understand where are the challenges and reflecting on the time at Cox where there would be some people that would just get it. You know, op- colleagues in operations just would get it, um, and other other teams would struggle with it. You know, and if you look at sales within a sales team, there would be people that would absolutely get it, love it, um, and think it's, this is making their job so much easier and so much better. And then there would people would be people within the same team and the same function that wouldn't engage um, and would be quite vocal about how it wasn't it didn't work for them. And and I think it really comes down to data literacy. There's a couple of studies that have gone out. Um, the National Numeracy Organization has published some some research, as has Click, as part of the, the data literacy project. And both of those, you know, both of those studies suggest that somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of the UK working age population or businesses, you know, people in, in, in management positions globally don't have the numeracy skills or the data literacy skills that we would expect them to have or that they will need to have in order to succeed in their jobs in the future. And this isn't looking at how you, people can do, you know, differential calculus. This is looking at people's understanding of how to read, read charts, how to understand fractions and percentages. And if you think that 70 to 80 percent pretty pretty scary and you know the, in the click study that came out they said that only 32 percent of executives are data literate which means 68 percent of executives the people that are running these organizations are not so those are the cases where where they don't even think to set up a data function right that doesn't even well, come into it or or they see that they need they feel like they need to set up a data function because they've read it in the various leadership magazines that mm. this is what they need to do. But there's a difference between knowing that this is what you need to do and actually getting the value of it out. Most you think about, you know, dieting for example, people most people that are overweight or obese know that they need to lose weight. And a lot of them even know how to lose weight, but they just aren't able to do it. But also there's so much literature on it, right? Like if if you if you really put your mind to that, like you can find 
resources for that. Whereas knowing that you want to set up a data team, I mean, where do you go to figure out how where to start? And and I think you know there's there's more as I say, I think practices are emerging. I think there's as there's more organizations that are have been able to figure out how to successfully do it. There are more professionals that can help provide advice and guidance in that space. Um, in, as far as setting up a team, but there's a setting up a team and getting the right tech in place is different than ha- ha- changing the culture of an organization to become data driven. So you need to have a data team of some variety. You need to have some data. You need to have some tech. The data needs to have been cleansed to some level, and you have, need to have done some analysis on it. It could be forecasting models. It could be providing averages, but some sort of some sort of analysis of the data, and then you need to communicate those results. So that, that process of you get the data, you get the right tools, you get some people, they produce something. That's pretty well understood, and the scale of that just varies. What is less well understood is then once you've shared this information, how do you get people to use it and change what they've changed their decisions or change their business processes? And, I, you know, an example of this is reports that are get generated that people don't actually use, but they like to have because it gives them some comfort. And yeah, sometimes it's just the client has asked for these numbers and there, there's no follow up to that. It's just, OK, we need to make these numbers, right? And sometimes the client has asked for those numbers because they just like to have the security of those numbers because their boss is going to ask them what the numbers are. Yeah, they like to be seen to have numbers. Yes. And even better if the numbers will will reaffirm the decision which they've already made. You know, then there's justification for it. Um, yeah, and so the more numbers you get, the higher the chance that you'll find something that you wanted in the first place. Exactly. And I think that data people speaking data you don't even think about it. You think about the mean and the median and the mode. You know, you don't think about what standard deviation is. You don't think about what it means if something's, you know, normally distributed. You know how to deal with outliers, you know, all, all of these things. But that's not how most of the world thinks because most, most of the world doesn't spend their days looking at data. Yeah, I, I, I found it really fascinating that there's so much of my job that's the hardest is not the technical part. It's the how do we know what to work on to actually make a difference? That's the part that is so hard. Everything else is like, you can learn how to do linear regression in a thousand different ways. That's that's not the challenge. That's been really eye-opening. So what, what do you think is the the most important thing to try and do like as soon as possible if you're trying to set up a new data function to try and bridge that cultural gap? I think... If I, I'm going to go go back a bit and sort of probably in a bit of a roundabout way and answer answer your question. Go for it. Most people have been taught the maths that they that would be beneficial to them in their job. They have had the opportunity to learn it, but they have typically been between the ages of five and fifteen when they would have been taught this, and they would have been given you know word problems that are irrelevant. So you know. Basic algebraic equations don't have any meaning for an, an individual, like a 13-year-old. A, a you know, I'm talking sort of algebra one, you know, solving for x type of things or solving for x and y. That doesn't, it's just numbers or numbers and letters, which is even more confusing for people. But there's no context as to why this is useful. You know, in the same way, you know, story problems around, you know, if you've got a train that's leaving Berlin and going to Paris and it's traveling at this, you know, 
at 100 kilometers an hour and you've got another train that's traveling from Paris to Berlin and is traveling at 120 miles per hour or 120 kilometers per hour, where are they going to, to meet? That's not a problem that people need to solve in their real life. But people do need to solve the problem when the restaurant bill comes and they're out, out with seven friends to figure out how to, how to divide the check. And I think probably everyone in data has been in that situation where they put their hand up and say, you know, I, I do data. I'll do the maths on this one. Because it makes people uncomfortable. Because it's not familiar, because people haven't, people were disengaged in that learning process early on and it wasn't made relevant to them. I mean, even looking at myself, I didn't have any intention of studying math or doing anything in, 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 in the, in the field of mathematics and, and data as it's now emerged and become, um, until I took a math modeling class at university and saw, oh, wait, I can, the traveling sales problem, that's actually quite useful if I have to run a bunch of errands. Yeah, that sounded, that sounded a lot more practical than a lot of other people's maths modules that they would have taken. Exactly. Or, you know, Q theory. When we were studying Q theory, I still use it every time I go to the supermarket. Can you can you elaborate on that? So there's lots of different ways that you can that supermarket queues are defined. Um, so some of them are, are set up where, you know, most supermarkets they might have, say, eight different checkout queues which you can you can join. And then you have to figure out, well, there's three people in this one and there's four people in this one, but there's five people in that one. But the blind has a five people, like everyone's got less than 10 items. So which queue should you stand in to go get the fastest? Now, so data, some analysis on this, and I'm, gonna, I'm going off on tangent, but this is something that I think is just fascinating. Um, this is great. You want to look at not only the number of people in the queue, but the number of items that they have. But but if if there's, say, a queue with five people, each with five items, and then there's a queue with three people, each which has 15 items. Probably the queue that has three people, each with 15 items, will end up going through faster because the thing that takes the most amount of time at the supermarket checkout is not their bringing up of each individual item. It is the payment. So there's an interaction effect between the number. You need to look at both the number of people and the number of things they have have in their basket. And also different cashiers will, will bring people out at different paces, even though supermarkets are trying to standardize all of that and so if you get to then understand the pace with which individual people check things out at your local supermarket that can also help inform a decision now some supermarkets have queues where if you've got like a basket of items you can sort of queue up to to self-serve um, which basically means there's sort of there can be one queue where you've got multiple checkouts and generally speaking that that single queue that has multiple checkouts will will almost always be faster then the queue that's got only three people in it, even if there's six people in that or, or eight people in that individual checkout, eight people in the queue for the self-service checkouts, if there's a sufficient number of self-service checkout machines, then um, you'll get through that queue faster. Well, I certainly never had problems like this at GCSE level. It was definitely all trains and, and solve for X. Yes, and, and the same applies for airport security as well. So, again, you look at the people you want to be behind, typically businessmen or women. You definitely don't want to be behind people that have families with kids. Um, and you typically want to be behind people that speak the language of the airport that you're in because they'll be most familiar with the procedures. Yeah. So so really, like to solve the cultural problem, we need to solve the education problem. I, I, I that's I mean, and so this is. These are these are games that I play that I don't even realize that I'm doing. I just subconsciously do it because this is just how my my brain is 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 wired and has been trained. But if people were taught this, how it was useful for them, 
earlier on, then I don't think there would be as much of a problem. I think you know one of the other things is if we look at you know the stats around how many people are not numerate, you know, or are, are not data literate, or um, you know numerate. I, I, mean, I use the, the terms interchangeably. You know, I, I had multiple teachers when I was at school that openly said that they didn't like math or they found it hard. And culturally, we accept that pe- people talk about how they're bad at math, and that's accepted. But no one says, I can't read. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. It is It is almost like a cultural, it's like, it's, it's fine. It's a of honor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as if it's like, it's almost like, because it's so uncool to be good at it, because you have to be some kind of... You know, nerd genius. traditionally or genius, yeah, to 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 um to have those skills. But really, you know, they could help you get out of the supermarket faster. I, or, I remember, or I was going to say, get out of the supermarket faster, or um, you know, understand how much interest you're going to be paying on your credit card. Well, yeah, even more consequential. Sorry, you're going to say something. Oh no, I was just going to say, I remember I hated all my stats classes that I ever took until it was rebranded as data science and actually had some applications that I could I, I could, you know, get behind and see the value of. You know, if I told my sixteen year old self trying to struggle through the the stats classes and it was just if you would have told me then that that's what I'd be doing for a living or using those skills, I just I would not have believed you. But it really is just a question of putting it in into some kind of applied terms. Exactly, and you know, my my third year of university, I spent, I did a year of probability and statistics in the maths department, and it was highly theoretical. And I did a semester of statistics and research methods in the political science department, and then I was a teaching assistant for that course the following semester. So I had half of my courses that year were stats courses, a quarter of which were theory and a quarter of which were applied, and. Learning the theory behind linear regression at the same time of then applying linear regression to solve problems gave me a really deep understand. I think probably a deeper level of understanding than just my my friends in, in political science that only had that level of exposure because I, I, I truly did understand the, the mathematical reasons behind why it worked and a lot of the you know, underlying assumptions that were made. Um, and so that doing them together I think brought a, a depth and a richness to my understanding, which I, I wouldn't have had if I'd done either in isolation. And again, I think if you look at education, I think a lot of data scientists that I see today are trained in the sort of technical side of things. But there's the critical thinking, you know, the critical reasoning aspect of it. You know, why are we doing this analysis? What's what's the, what's the purpose? What's the context? That I, you know, I'm starting to see some, you know, data scientists that, that come out of various programs don't necessarily have that training or that skill set. I think people in the hard sciences and that are following scientific method, running experiments, etc., and the social science that are you know, doing similar things have more of that critical thinking, sort of critical reasoning skills than coming straight out of you know pure sort of data science programs or, or pure statistics programs. I think it's not just the math, it's also then using that logic to to think about something and to think about it critically. Be able to challenge numbers that look questionable, and also to, when you're given you know competing analysis, to be able to synthesize that um, and, and be able to draw your own conclusions. That ability to look at multiple sources of information and draw your own conclusions is a skill that is difficult to measure and quantify, 
um, and isn't something that I see a lot of investment in. And as a result, I think you know, that is part of the reason why fake news has been so successful is because many people don't have a as strong an ability as perhaps they ought to have in being able to look at multiple sources of information and determine what 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 the facts are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you, so, so I think it's also it's also having that business context as well. I think the the other gap, especially in the technical elements, is that people come out of a lot of data science education programs with, or just sort of PhDs even, that you don't have that experience being in, in a sort of more enterprise setting, which means that you don't understand as much or as deeply that the the value of your work is not, not the model that you build, but the, well, going back to what you said earlier about the decisions that you change or the business processes that you impact, that's, there's also, I think, a gap there but that's really hard to teach without actually just doing it. I mean, I, I love, I get excited about beautiful, beautiful proofs, about elegant models. You know, I can geek out about that stuff as much as the next person, because that's that's my background. That's, you know, my, my soul space within the data data field. But that's, I appreciate that, and you, you appreciate that. Um, but the business, with very rare exceptions... Unless you are an AI business or a business whose business is in, in algorithm development, so I, I look at you know some of the high-speed trading algorithms, people aren't going to appreciate, and even in those cases, people don't appreciate your what you've built because of the, the inherent beauty of it. They appreciate it because of what it delivers. And I think it's really excited as data people to get it, to geek out about how beautiful this visualization looks or how fast this data can be processed or how you know, parsimonious as algorithm is, but no one cares outside of outside of the little data field. That's the harsh reality. That's, that's that's the reality, and this is why you know I think it's really important for people in the in data space, particularly working in in non tech organizations where they've got a, a team of people, hopefully with peers, etc. Why I think it's really important to continue to network outside of that and swap ideas and sort of get your geek on and keep that side of you growing while also recognizing that you are you are building things that are quite valuable but not for their own sake. It's for it's for what the, the decisions that are improved or the processes that get automated or the increase in the number of sales, etc. It's it's an enabler for a business output that's desired as opposed to being business output that's desired in and of itself. And there there are exceptions to this. Like I say, certain AI organizations, Google search algorithm, for example, that that is the the output. Yeah, but most businesses don't have don't have that level of sophisticated requirements for AI. No, and I and I honestly, and this this may, this may be controversial, but I don't think that most businesses will end up needing that level of data science because by the time they've progressed along the insight journey to need it, there will be off-the-shelf solutions that will have been built by specialists that will do it for them. In the same way that organizations that want to build visual dashboards typically don't write their own visual dashboard building software. They might buy a Tableau or a Click or Power BI. I think that AI is going to be the same thing because there's so much space between organizations where they are now and where they would where they would need to be in order to take advantage of, of things like AI. There's so much lower hang, so much more lower hanging fruit. That's much less sexy. Yeah, and that's the thing, and what I always or what we talked about on on this podcast, like depending on what excites you about data science, you know, some jobs out there will be on the sort of business enterprise end where 
it's the results, it's it's improving the business that is the that is the thing that really excites you about the job and the thing that you're really trying to push. But there is the other end of the spectrum where your job is very much sort of algorithmic and and more academic. Uh, and you know, along that spectrum, there's going to be a lot of variation. But I think the thing that is rising or is going to rise the most is the enterprise world catching up with with the need to do something in this space, but but just to drive business value, not to, as you say, in and of itself, create nice solutions. Um, and then, so so the last sort of, to sort of wrap up, and the last big question I want to ask you is knowing what you know now, sort of two, almost three years after you started building the, the data team that, that I'm still part of, uh, mm-hmm. what would you do differently? I was actually asked this question earlier this week. And the first thing that left to mind was that I needed to hire a manager for the BI team. So that was the second hire that I had attempted to make right after I recognized the need for a BA. And I hired someone. And within two days of him starting, I realized that it was not going to be, it was not going to work out. And he left after three months. And in that process, I had also spoken with a guy who I thought would be brilliant for the job would absolutely nail it, but was a bit out of budget. Um, and once I had fired the person that was not working out, I shifted my budget around uh, and was able to hire the person that I had originally thought would be the best person for the job. I wish I just hired the right person for the job in the first place. And this is, this is Artis, who's just absolutely brilliant and made such a positive impact to the team as soon as he joined. And so that's that was a thing that I, I didn't hire appropriately for that role. And so, you know, artists didn't start until a year after I'd first spoken with him. And so that's that's something in hindsight that I would I would do differently. I, I would have done differently. Um, but I think that's also it's a lesson that I needed to learn. And I think, that, you know, it, I haven't made that many more hiring mistakes since then. Um, I try to if I make a mistake, I try to learn from it and not keep making the same mistake. Um, but that's definitely something that I, I would I would have done differently. That's a great message for data professionals or for for companies hiring data professionals. Shift the budget around, pay pay top money for the right people. That that's what we need to, companies to realize in here. Necessarily, you need to pay. You know, it's not always that the most expensive person is the best person. No, but 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 when when there's a when there's a budget gap for the right person, you know, it's worth worth it, leaping it if you can. The, and the times that I did that have have always paid off when you find the right person for the job it's worth it to jump through whatever hoops you need to jump through for that person um and i guess you know on the flip side of that if someone is not the right person for the job and you realize it you need to make a change there very very quickly because if you let it linger um then it will demoralize the whole team um and i'm fortunate that i didn't see that at cox you know that i was able to note the problem you know reasonably quickly um but i i have seen that at other at other organizations great and then finally, where can people find you online and keep up with whatever uh, whatever your next steps are in your career? You can find me on Twitter at Allison M. Now. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Allison Now. If you Google my name, I'll be the first. You'll, you'll find me because there's only one other Allison Now that is out there in the world that I've so far identified, and she is a hairdresser in California. <laughs> Hard to confuse those professions. So um, it'll be pretty pretty easy to find me. I'm always open for connecting with people on LinkedIn. Um, and if, if anyone is hearing this and is interested in hearing more about my thoughts or things that I might be able to contribute to where their organization is, get in touch. Fantastic. I'll put all those links in the show notes when this goes out. 
Um, thanks, Alison. This has been a really, really fascinating uh, conversation. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be will, will find a lot of interest in it. So thanks, thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure.